I'm Kat. I'm Taylor. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder! Uh, You'll be happy to hear that this week we have taken complete leave of our senses and crossed completely from creepy true crime and ghostly goings-on into full-blown supernatural tales. Yay! It was bound to happen eventually. (laughs) Uh, So this week we are going back to Exeter, Rhode Island in 1892 to talk about the Mercy Brown incident. So over to Taylor. Let's get into it. So... This is also exciting as a as a a born and raised New Englander. Like this, these are my stupid people. <laughs> yeah, quite literally. Um, so, and you grew up all over New England as well, yeah, didn't you? Yeah. So, not Rhode so. Island, but have you been? Oh yeah, yeah. It's beautiful, the ocean state. So the U.S. has been through many various panics. We are a panicky people, I will say. So there was the misogyny wrapped up as supernatural panic known as the Salem Witch Trials, which, you know, a real early US I don't I wasn't that was before it was a United States. It was just the New World. Yeah. Um you had the satanic panic in the nineteen eighties. You had the uh, the Red Scare panic over communism, uh, which were also known as the McCarthy witch hunts in the 50s. Um, and uh, obviously, if you've been paying attention to the news at all today, we're still doing a whole panic, quote unquote, uh, about immigration and resources and welfare, which is actually more accurately called racism. So, yeah. There's that. I mean, you are a very anxious people, aren't you? We truly are. That That's why we left England. We were like, you guys are too chill for us. Yeah. We need a big continent to just freak out all over. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're doing a great job. Yeah, we it certainly must be are. Said. <laughs> um, but the one that you may not know much about... Uh, happened in the late 19th century, and that is the Rhode Island Vampire Panic. And this particular panic uh, had folklore combined with a lack of understanding of different diseases and medical conditions, which led to statewide fear of vampires literally sucking the life out of the living. Just, it's amazing. So it's against this backdrop of panic that the story of Mercy Brown takes place. So a bit like last week's story about uh, Zona Heaster, we don't actually know that much about uh, Mercy Brown's life because, again, in this case, uh, unfortunately, it is her death and, quote, afterlife for which she has become so well known. Keep wanting to say Murphy Brown. Very different. Very different person. Just yeah. <laughs> um, so Mercy Lena Brown was born in 1872 or possibly 73 to a farming family in the small town of Exeter, Rhode Island. She was the daughter of George and Mary Eliza, and the sister of Mary Olive and Edwin. But Mercy didn't exactly have a great childhood. Her mother, Mary Eliza, died in 1884 when Mercy would have been 11 or 12, and two years later, her elder sister, Mary Olive, also died. And both Mary Eliza and Mary Olive died of consumption. So, consumption was the 19th century name for a much-feared disease which caused chronic coughing, fatigue, fever, and coughing of blood. In the latter stages of the disease, it caused rapid weight loss, which is why it is known as as, uh, consumption, because the disease pretty much just consumed the body, just wasted away. Today, we call it TB, or tuberculosis. Yeah. And so if you're about the same age as us, which, you know, we don't talk about our age. Taylor was 30 last week. 
What are or you? Older. You're you, lying. <laughs> you might remember getting a TB jab at school when you were around 13 to do that in the US. If you're in the UK, ain't nobody <laughs> vaccinating anybody in schools. I just learned about this. That's not legal in the US. <laughs> what? It's voluntary. It's not like compulsory. No, but like you, you would never get a shot in a school. Wow. Ever. You have to go to a doctor's office for that. So, okay, I find this really weird because we had like um, meningitis job in primary school. So nurses came in, you had your jab, unless you were, you know, unless your parents didn't want you to have it, you know. It had to be like consented to. Yeah. Um, in secondary school, so around the age of 13, you got TB jab, so you have six pricks, which is literally like a stamp of six needles into your forearm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a week later, they examine the, like, what kind of reaction you've had to it. And unless you've had, like, some kind of crazy reaction to it, you have your jab. Mm-hmm. If you've had, like, whatever this reaction is, you have to go and have your, like, like chest x-rays and things like that, because it could be a sign of like um i don't think it's a sign it's like not a sign that you've got tb or that you have anything but you could be vulnerable Mm -hmm. to other uh sort of respiratory conditions um yeah no you need to you need to go to a doctor's office to do all those things in america wow i I just find that really weird because that's so normal to us that that's part of why everyone gets vaccinated is it's done in schools um yeah no i think that probably like if (laughs) well not now because it'll never happen this way now but if if a while back there had been a system in the u.s of like kids in public schools get vaccinated at school like it it reduces the the barrier for you know, entry you know, to do it somewhere that where they are every day, probably mm-hmm. we wouldn't have the major, major fucking issue of the anti-vaxxers in the U.S. right now. But Yeah. And also, I suppose, like, we've obviously got the universal healthcare system here, which yeah. you don't have in America, so I presume that plays quite a big part in it. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you have to pay for them. I didn't personally at seven years old, but no, someone did. So I mean, you weren't raiding your piggy bank. No, no, I don't think so. Anyway, so yeah, yeah. That, but uh, it's funny because the gremlin and I were talking about this the other day, and she was like, "Oh yeah, when you got vaccinated at school," and I was like, "Excuse me, what now?" <laughs> like that's not a thing. Yeah, it. it on one hand, I'm amazed because I'm like, "Wow, I just assumed that that happened everywhere." But when you think about it, yeah universal health care it's a completely different system yeah so yeah let us know where you are listening from and and where you got needles stuck in your arm oh wait that sounds wrong <laughs> yeah very very different worlds we come from yes uh they don't do tb jabs in school in this country anymore because it's considered eradicated uh-huh. in the uk it is considered eradicated in many parts of the world but we should also point out it is not in a lot of other parts. And it is, I mean, there's, it's still a massive problem amongst like homeless communities in places like Skid Row in LA. And there's a whole debate about that in relation to the Elisa Lam case. Mm-hmm. Because the test, one of the tests for TV is actually called the Lam Eliza. Oh, that's right. That, yeah. So there's that conspiracy theory. Because um, Skid Row in LA had such a, huge problem around the time she died actually mm. um and in you know so-called third world countries so in some places it is still a big problem generally western europe it's considered fairly eradicated mm-hmm. however consumption was used as a bit of a catch-all term back in the olden days so whilst most of those who died of consumption, you know, like when the bodies have been exhumed and like what tissue has survived has been tested, it's generally come back as TB. Mm-hmm. 
there were also people who died from cancer, from rabies and all sorts of other unidentified or misunderstood diseases who were listed as, you know, having died from consumption. And these are all kind of diseases where the body does waste away. Mm -hmm. You can see how that can all be kind of conflated together. Yeah, no, that does make sense, actually. Five years after the death of Mary Olive in 1891, Edwin fell ill. Uh, He traveled to Colorado Springs in the hopes that the more temperate climate and sort of warmer, balmier atmosphere would help improve his health. But he returned to Rhode Island in early 1892 in a worse state than when he left. Uh, According to Smithsonian Magazine, at this time, Exeter and many other small farming communities across the country were suffering from the after effects of the U.S. Civil War. The population in 1890 was less than 1,000. In 1820, it was around 2,500. Added to the fact that the land in these areas uh, was difficult to farm, and many people either abandoned their farms and moved elsewhere seeking employment, or uh, their property was repossessed by banks or the government. By the 1890s, the Exeter area was kind of akin to a ghost town. Although this is only 130 years ago, um, and at a time where many discoveries and developments in medicine and public health in many rural places and some urban areas too, uh, folklore and supernatural suspicion shall we say, still played a big part in everyday life. Yeah, I mean, we forget about how recent that time was, really. Yeah, yeah. In the grand scheme of human history, 130 years of sort of modern medicine compared to hundreds of thousands and thousands of years of folklore and superstition. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like, it's going to take a lot of convincing to, to switch that mindset over right yeah so in january 1892 19 year old mercy lena also died of consumption leaving only her father in good health and her brother who was seriously ill how did the father manage to avoid is he just like really ah, well, lucky you'll you will see uh, or was he a vampire no he wasn't oh okay but you'll see Uh, Because of the weather in New England, during the winter, the frozen ground was often far too hard to dig through, and so bodies were kept in above-ground crypts until they could be buried when the soil had thawed in the spring. And this is what happened to Mercy Brown. Her body was kept in a crypt until she could be buried. And one thing to note is that Mercy Lena's consumption was known as the galloping kind. Because it kind of set in very quickly. It wasn't a long, drawn-out process as other cases of consumption might be. So yeah, they called it galloping consumption because it just galloped through your body. I love it. (laughs) Yes. Now, you asked about the father. Well, part of the superstition at this time surrounding consumption revolved around the deaths of multiple women in the same family from the same disease. Now, according to an article on All That's Interesting, there was a belief that if multiple members of the family died from consumption, essentially wasting away, it was because one of the dead was returning and literally draining the life from the living relative. More often than not, it was all to do with women. Well, I'm shocked, really. So, you know, there were... You know, if they hadn't got to him yet, they were coming back and working on the brother first. Okay, yeah, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so George Brown didn't place much stock in this myth, uh, appearing instead to believe that the family were just unlucky and that his wife and two daughters had died from a disease which was just one of the many that were rampant at the time. Like, so many. <laughs> yeah. So, so many. Um. But yeah, it reminds me, get vaccinated if you can. Yes. Oh my God. Do it. Also, uh, if any of our listeners are over 50 and live in the UK, you can now go and book your vaccine. You don't need to wait for a doctor to contact you. Yeah. Um, Just and getting that out there. In, in a, in a tie in to the other podcast that I produce, 
Uh, if you are an unpaid carer in Scotland, which I don't know if any of our listeners are, but if you are, um, you can go to the NHS Inform website and self-register for your vaccine. So oh, go do that. That's good. Yeah, We have turned into a vaccination information. Process. Just go get stabbed in the arm so we can all walk around again. <laughs> yeah. I know. Once I get told I can have mine, I don't care where I'm going in the Northeast. It's getting done. Yeah, exactly. It's like, just let, just make it happen. Yes. Anyway. So, yeah. Oh, here Rampant diseases. So many diseases. Um, lots of diseases. As Edwin began to deteriorate more and more from this mysterious illness, many in the local community began to buy into this superstition and believe that it was either Mary Eliza, Mary Olive, or Mercilina who was coming back and draining the life from Edwin. Name your people different first names. Why couldn't it just yeah. be Olive? Like, it's, it's confusing. Yeah, that's why I've even put Mercy's middle name yeah. in. Because... Mary Mercy. Mary, Mary Mercy. Yeah. Also, Olive is a lovely name. Yeah. And a lovely food. I don't think we have enough olives anymore. I agree. Both people and food. Don't hide it behind a Mary. Jesus. Mm. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Anyway. Uh... <laughs> So this old folktale could supposedly be proven if the deceased body contained fresh blood. Cool. So <laughs> as Edwin's health rapidly declined following Mercy Lena's death, uh, their father became increasingly desperate, but he continued to dismiss this old like tale about the dead coming back and draining the life from the living. That is for a while. Exactly two months after Mercilina's death, uh, George Brown was finally convinced to allow the exhumation of Mary Olive and Mary Eliza's bodies for examination, and Mercilina's body was removed from the crypt so that it could be examined as well. As with all of these old cases, I'm sure you know the score by now, there are discrepancies between varying accounts and sources. So some sources claim that in the two months between Mercy Lena's death in January and the exhumation in March, her body had actually been interred alongside her mother and sister, but most say that she had been kept in an above-ground crypt awaiting internment when the ground thawed. Mm. So she would, by March, you would be expecting that the ground would be beginning to thaw and you could bury people again. But that was really common. Yeah. Like everywhere where it freezes in winter for um, bodies to be stored in crypts over winter until they were ready to be buried. See, and I think also like in a lot of places in New England, you're much more likely in the cemeteries to see crypts, like family crypts instead of like family plots kind of thing. Probably yeah. for that reason, now that I think about it. Mm. And also it's a money thing as well, depending on where the money was. It's yeah. like richer families did tend to, to use crypts and mausoleums. Yeah. Whereas for others it was just necessity until the ground thawed. Yeah. But either way, on March 17th, so right time of year. Oh, yeah. Yesterday the, as of this recording. Yeah. The three bodies were removed, ready to be examined by Dr. Harold Metcalf from the nearby town of Wickford. Also, what a lovely St. Paddy's Day surprise. Here's three oh, yeah. Here's three dead bodies. They might be vampires. <laughs> Congrats. I completely forgot that it was St. Patrick's Day. I did. So, I forgot until about 4 p.m. I was like, oh, crap. And then I saw a picture on Instagram of um, the river in Chicago. Yep. And it was green. And I was like, they die at green. Fresh hell is this? They die at green every year. <laughs> Yeah, but I didn't know that, and it didn't click, like, it just didn't compute at first, and I was like, what is happening to the world now? It just knows that it's St. Patrick's Day, and it's like, okay, guys, <laughs> time to be green. No, so I was more like, okay, we've had, what have we had? We had forest fires, what kind we of had bushfires, we had meth alligators, we had a fire tornado at one point, you know, what What, what kind of chemical on? spill is this? 
So when the three bodies were examined, Mary Eliza's and Mary Olive's bodies were exactly as you would have uh, expected them to be. Um, and, you know, after being underground for eight and six years, respectively, they were little more than skeletal remains. So it was quickly decided that it was not Mary Eliza or Mary Olive who were coming back from the dead to suck the light life out of Edwin. They got a pass, so they were reinterred. But uh, Mercy Lena's body was a different story. Now, uh, before we get into the details of, of, of Mercy's sort of difference here, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the process of skeletonization. So, if you are super squeamish, um, don't eat anything, maybe skip ahead like a couple minutes, do the little like 30 second skip button and see where you end up and <laughs> just like, this is what we're going to talk about for a minute. So, here we go. Um, and fair warning, uh, we are not pathologists or biologists. This is a very basic understanding of the process uh, based on the research that we've done over this and other episodes. So here we go. Skeletiz I can't say this word, by the way. Skeletonization <laughs> is the seventh stage of death. The only stage after it is fossilization. Um, skeletonization is the final stage of decomposition. Now, the, the internal organs and soft tissues decay or dry out to the point where the skeleton is exposed. And by the end of skeletonization, uh, there should only be dried bones left. So there are a number of factors which impact the rate of skeletonization and whether the body skeletonizes or mummifies, as does happen in some cases. And one of the main factors is the climate. Yep. In the right climate, a body can completely decompose and skeletonize in as little as three weeks. Side note, I had no idea it could happen that quickly. Yeah, it, it, I it can. I thought it took at least like a months. few months. Yeah. I didn't realize it could happen as quickly as three weeks. Yeah, which is like why it makes it very important to know like the climate or you know the the sort of conditions in which a body is found to know like how long it's been there or or you know time of death or that sort of thing yeah so in some conditions it can take years for a body to completely skeletonize and in some like extreme cold climates such as, you know, the Arctic, parts of Siberia, where the ground is covered with like permafrost and snow and it just never lets up. A body can be perfectly preserved for millennia without decomposing at all. It's like all the people on top of Mount Everest. Yeah, like exactly. green boots I was going to go for like these woolly mammoths that they've now found. Oh, yeah. You know. Uh, similarly, in desert conditions, the body can sometimes naturally mummify rather than skeletonize, just because of the heat, just the dry. dry out. Yeah. Um, the type of coffin and above or below ground burial can also contribute to the rate of skeletonization. So, in the summer or in a warm climate, Mercy Lena's body would likely have decomposed and skeletonized in the two months since her death. But in the very cold, frozen New England winter, being stored in a crypt, which is essentially a giant walk-in freezer. Yeah, literally. <laughs> decomposition was much, much slower. I'm just like, yeah, if it, you know, it's basically like a stone or like marble box outside in below freezing weather. You got yourself a nice natural freezer there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, in, in some places, like, in in the UK especially, like, houses were built with, like, a stone room like that for storing food. Yeah, yeah, like a 
you had a meat pantry. Yeah, exactly. So it's well known what happens when you keep bodies in a stone building in winter. Yeah. One would think, right? (laughs) Well, yeah, okay. You would think people would understand. Um, So the doctor tried to emphasize that he expected uh, that the decomposition of Mercilina's body would be much slower than normal because she had been above ground in a stone crypt in freezing conditions. But as is often the case with members of the medical community, uh, his words fell on deaf ears once the locals heard the results of the examination of her body. Now, um, under normal conditions, all bodily fluids like blood would have mostly decomposed in the two months since her death. But in these frigid temperatures, it appeared as though there was fresh blood in Mercilina's mouth, heart, and liver. So once word got out that there was blood found in Mercilina's heart and mouth and that her body was almost perfectly preserved, the locals were convinced that she was the one who was coming back from the dead and siphoning the life from her brother. It was also feared that when she had sucked the life from her brother and he died, she would move on to other relatives or neighbors and begin siphoning from them. Oh, boy. However... All was not lost. The folk tales which told of, you know, deceased female relatives coming back to, you know, drain the life from the living also had a handy remedy to stop these pesky women coming back from the dead. Isn't that just so lucky? That's good, that's great. Uh, As per this remedy, uh, uh, Messy Lena's heart and liver were removed from her body and burnt to ashes. These ashes were then mixed with water to form a tonic. And the rest of her body was then buried in a nearby cemetery. The folklore claimed that drinking this tonic would stop the dead from feasting on the living and enable the living to return to full health. Uh, You're pulling some beautiful faces there. I don't want to drink the ashes of a no, nobody Dead does. Dead person's liver and heart. And that's like, that's not even like a fresh dead person. Like, I know she's a little bit fresh because she's been frozen, but like, no, I don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that happened. Ugh. But of course, it didn't work like that because who'd have thought? You know, drinking the ashes of organs from people who died of TB wasn't a miracle cure. Who knew? I'm shocked. And less than two months later, Edwin Brown died. Oh, good lord. Um, Mercilina Brown's death and burial, or the Mercy Brown incident, as it's also known, Um, was not the first, nor was it the last story of rural communities being convinced that the dead were coming back to suck the life out of them. But it is perhaps one of the most well-known instances. Mm. Uh, Some sources refer to Mercilina as a vampire, others simply as a woman who came back to kill her brother by slowly draining the life from him. Um, Although the idea of vampires were very well established in cultures all across the world by the late 19th century, it wasn't um, a term that was in everyday use in New England. Either way, Mercilina's story is one of many from across Rhode Island in the late 19th century, all of which fed into the Rhode Island vampire panic, as well as the much wider Great New England vampire panic across other New England states, including Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Vermont. So the Great New England Vampire Panic actually began 99 years before Mercy Lena's death in Manchester, Vermont. Oh, Manchester. Any, any Vermont stories to share with us today? I'm just thinking... Bearing in mind my laptop is dying. <laughs> I'm just thinking Manchester... Uh, I've definitely been there a bunch. I think that's where our internet provider 
company is. So we have to always drive over there to get new um, routers because lightning strikes our house a lot and fries ours a lot. So (laughs) that's basically what I got for you. I think actually Manchester is where I got my um, driver's license. Licenses, licensees over the years. And I actually currently have a Vermont driver's license. So Very good. So according to our old friend Wikipedia, in 1793, a man named Isaac Burton exhumed the body of his late wife Rachel and created a tonic from her cremated organs to give to his second wife, uh, Hulder, who was slowly dying from consumption. Hulder. Hulder, That's a name. Yeah. As with Messilena and Edwin, 99 years later, the tonic failed, and in September 1793, Hulder died. Because that's, that's what, what happens. happens. Yep. Uh, they're listed as the first documented victims of the New England vampire panic. Mm. Although there are other stories that exist of older instances like this, of consumption and tonics and things like that. But it's the way the word vampire is used. Yeah. Sort of culturally i think yeah as to whether it was just you know consumption or a vampire makes sense and while in more rural areas superstition and folk medicine were still commonplace in more sort of urban and affluent areas it had been replaced by sort of con- what was at the time like the constantly developing modern medicine that we now think of uh, which is one of the reasons Messilena's story stuck out so much at the time. So Exeter, Rhode Island is uh, close to the seaside town of Newport. Beautiful place. Uh, which was and still is a popular summer destination for affluent New Englanders. Um, like it's where the Kennedys had summer homes. Yeah. If that's <laughs> If that helps anyone. Like Newport, they have, oh, there's a tennis championship that happens there every year. That's a big deal. They have um, the, fuck, what's it called? It's like the sailboat, the American sailboat competition race thing every year. Uh, So it's that kind of town. Exeter, it's close to Newport, but... Um, it was rural and the locals beliefs in these old superstitions were seen at the time as strange when they were so close to the well-to-do and highly educated, uh, folk in Newport who understood the medical developments of the time. Um, and the move away from folk medicine to what we now think of as modern medicine. Uh, Mercy Lena Brown is often referred to as the last New England vampire, so perhaps her story could be the last case of this rural community clinging to their traditional folk medicines before new understandings of consumption and later to be, to oh fuck TB yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> and later tuberculosis replaced the old superstitions. It's that R tuber that's what gets me. I can't deal with the mm. R. Um, and it was not long after her death that germ theory and a better understanding of infectious diseases began to develop. But one of the main reasons that Mercy Lena's story became so well known and has sort of stood the test of time is that her story made it to the newspapers all over the USA and continued to do so for the next few years. And some sources say that her family actually had a big part in that. Hmm. Because they, you know, they told the story, they kept telling, on, you know, sort of the locals in Exeter, they kept telling this story um, and kept it alive. So she died in 1892. In 1896, a traveling theater group from the Lyceum Theater was performing in New York. And at the same time, Mercy Lena's story was in the New York world. Their stage manager, read the story and saved the clippings for the rest of his life. Wow. These newspaper clippings were found amongst his possessions when he died. 
And it is thought that Mercilena's story, along with, you know, the vampire tales from Eastern Europe, you know, your Vlad the Impaler types, uh, were part of the inspiration for this stage manager to sit down and write his very own vampire novel a few years later. Perhaps the most well-known and influential vampire novels of all time, first, pub first published in 1897. If you haven't guessed where I'm going with this, his name was Bram Stoker and the book was Dracula, which does hold a special place in my heart because part of it is set in Whitby, oh, which is cool. the nearest town to where I'm from. Well, we have, this is quite an influential case in culture that I have to say. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. Now, according to the travel website Atlas Obscura, which is such a good website. So cool. Um, Mercilina's grave in Exeter is a popular dark tourism destination. And there's even a guest book people can sign and gifts of coins, jewelry, and <laughs> plastic vampire teeth are often left at the gravesite. Uh, according to the same article, there's a woman named Sarah Tillinghast buried in the same historic cemetery. Uh, Sarah was one of a number of women in her family who died from consumption, and her body was also exhumed, and her organs were burned to save others from consumption when it was found that her body hadn't decomposed as much as the other women in her family. If you've reached this point in the story and you're still expecting some kind of true crime link, well, don't know what to tell you, but you're going to be disappointed. There isn't really one other than, you know, cops bothering. <laughs> I mean, it is technically a crime. I just like that phrasing. It's not like desecration of a, of a body. It's just like, oh, excuse me, Mr. Dead Guy, can I trouble you for a moment? Like, just like it's mm. like just being annoying at a corpse or something. That's what I picture. <laughs> no real true crime link because as we said at the top of the show we've completely left the realm of the normal and sensible and gone firmly to folklore and superstition for this episode um and let's be honest we all kind of need something otherworldly like real yeah. the real world is just shit at the moment yeah. um and that is the story of mercy lena brown and the rhode island vampire panic i like that one See, here's the thing. I kind of think that, like, you could say there's true crime um, elements to this because mm. there's a, a, a crime, supposedly, like someone mm. or something is sucking the life out of uh, your family or your neighbors or whatever. There's an yeah. investigation that yeah. involves exhuming someone and looking at their organs so it's a gross investigation but it is an investigation <laughs> and then there's a conclusion drawn and now unfortunately it just so happens that this investigation led to the wrong conclusions yeah <laughs> but like and and i think that also we've talked about this before from time to time where, like, as humans, we search for, like, the least worst explanation for things. Yeah. And I think this really fits into that idea of, like, well, my entire family can't have been killed by this disease that, like, just comes out of nowhere and we have no control over. And, like, we don't really understand it. We just know that it happens. It has to be something like evil. Yeah, I mean, we yeah we talked about this. I think in sort of the first time we really talked about it was Bible John. Which yeah, is actually Patreon episode, so not the greatest example um, or reference point. But you know, we think everyone wants to believe that Bible John is either Peter Tobin or Angus Sinclair, mm -hmm. even though there are massive discrepancies, especially with Angus Sinclair. Mm -hmm. But it's because they were two serial killers from Glasgow who operated in the same area at the same time as Peter Tobin, as um, Bible John, sorry. Mm -hmm. 
and we don't like the thought that there's a that there are serial killers out there who haven't been caught. Yeah. So we like the thought that Bible John is Peter Tobin because he's in prison and he's never going to get out. And but we like that idea. We don't like the idea that this this serial killer has, you know, been loose in Scotland for fifty years. Yeah. Yeah. Coming up sixty years. Yeah, it's like um, it's more comforting. So this can be applied in the exact same way. We don't like the thought that you know, a family is so unlucky that they all die from the same disease very quickly. Mm -hmm. So we look for another explanation. And when you've then got like also like a folk cure in this whole ashy water tonic thing. So gross. Yeah, it's disgusting, but it gives you the feeling of power and control over something. And I'm sure in some instances there's like a placebo effect, right? Like, oh, well. Yeah. I drank the the heart water. I'm safe. And like maybe they were. Yeah. Like maybe they just happened to be lucky and they were safe. Cuz I mean, I may have missed it when I was reading sources. I couldn't find what Edwin actually died of if he died of consumption as well. Yeah. Because it was a long drawn out illness which could have been consumption. It could have been something else. But it, yeah. So I'm not entirely sure what he died of. As I said, I could have just missed it, cause, you know. It happens sometimes. Yeah. Um, but depending on what he had, absolutely a placebo effect could take place. Yeah. Um, no, and I also think that, like, New England is, I would say, in general, a, a, a region of the United States that is steeped in tradition and superstition even to this day. And like, yeah, one of the things that I always liked to do and still like to do when I'm there in, in small new England towns is to count the number of churches or like religious gathering places, (laughs) because I shit you not like the town that I grew up in probably had like, Oh, I don't know, 20 different churches or synagogues or temples or whatever. And there was only and how many people? Fifteen thousand. Oh wow! Just like I've always kind of, I find it fascinating in New England, especially as someone who has no connection to religion except from a like educational standpoint. You know, yeah. um, that like it just always seemed to me as a child that like they were compensating for something. And and I don't know if it's just because like it's such a concentrated area and um like just all these different offshoots of various religions happened to you know, someone was like, well, I don't like going to the first congregational church. I'm going to start the, you know, second Episcopal church or whatever the heck, you know. Yeah. But I also would would say that, like, especially Rhode Island, Massachusetts, like, there's such a there's such a thing of tradition. There's such a mm. thing of like, well, these are the stories that we know. These are the kinds of people that we are. These are the kinds of, you know, things that happened in our history, in our land, or or whatever it may be, and like. And they're just going to stick to that. And I, I can only imagine that that was, you know, you doubled down on that even more in the late 1800s kind of thing. So, yeah, it makes perfect sense that this happened there to me. What I find interesting, because there was similar sort of superstitions and stuff around consumption in this country, not necessarily to do with vampires, but it was definitely the, the whole like, it was the dead coming back to to kill the living. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting, TB symptoms or consumption, whatever you want to call it, are not characteristic of vampires. Hmm. Rabies is actually a much closer match in terms of um. So, rabies does eventually lead to madness. Mm-hmm. If it's not treated, but you have an aversion to water, which is um, a thing of vampires. Going back to Dracula, he was kept in a box with in a box of earth mm-hmm. 
essentially, on the passage from Transylvania to Whitby. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was something else, and I didn't write it down because I thought, oh, well, remember that. Um, but yeah, rabies is actually considered a much closer match to the sort of, uh, sort of canon characteristics of vampirism. Well, also rabies you get from being bitten. That's it. <laughs> How the fuck did I miss that? <laughs> That's the big one. Yeah. It, it's biting and, you know, from biting you then get, you know, drawing of blood. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. That's really interesting. Hmm. Um, which, yeah, I found interesting that, yeah, and, and I say we do equate consumption as being tuberculosis, but it isn't. Yeah. One day I will learn how to say that word no, right. It's fine. Nobody can say it. But yeah, we, we do think of, of them being the same disease, but consumption was kind of a catch-all mm-hmm. for a lot of other diseases that we just didn't understand at that point in human history. Yeah, yeah. And because consumption was was sort of, that term was used for centuries, long before these, you know, quote-unquote vampire panics. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So there you go. I also think that like these kinds of cases are interesting because in in the in pretty much all of the cases we talk about there's always kind of some discussion of medical examinations coroner like post-mortem exams so I think these kinds of cases are interesting from a like medical history point of view as well yeah because it like and i love it's like the doctor he was like guys listen i can tell you what's gonna happen and it's not gonna be the way you think it should be but it's okay and they're all like no vampires (laughs) yeah so like he knew but they were just like "Uh, not listening to you today gary sorry yeah and it's it's a very good illustration of that kind of resistance when you know societies did start to sort of turn away from the more traditional sort of folk medicine mm-hmm. and folk traditions and superstitions into what we think of as modern modern medicine more sign like science based mm-hmm. which is not to say obviously that all scientific um all folk medicine and folk rituals and stuff are complete rubbish no there's still like like even like stuff that my parents grew up with that's so it's gonna sound really stupid i'm gonna give you an example if you get bit by an insect what do you do uh i mean depends on what kind of insect just a random insect you're not dying but it's really itchy and annoying well you could put scotch tape over it to try to reduce the oxygen to it. That's one that I've heard. You could dig an X into it with your fingernail. You spit on it. Oh. Saliva, something in your own, it's your own saliva. There's some, it's like the enzymes. Mm-hmm. You spit on it and it neutralizes the irritation. Oh. It's like if you get a nettle sting, you rub a dock leaf on yeah. it. And where there are nettles, there are usually dock leaves. And it's little things like that which will have come from that that folklore medicine mm-hmm. kind of thing that do still work. And they are little things. And yeah, I wouldn't trust folklore if I got some really serious disease, same as I don't trust, you know, hippy-dippy medicine to treat coronavirus. Yes. Yeah. Or cancer. I'm going and getting my vaccine. Yeah. And uh, that's it for today, I think reached a very nice conclusion um which no it does not usually happen <laughs> no i don't know i guess uh, since this isn't technically a crime it's also kind of nice because there's no murderer so we don't have to well be- no but they did think that mercy lena was was a murderer coming back to slowly kill her that's brother. true rude and incorrect mm. um so yeah, if you uh, liked this, is this our last? No, we more? have one more supernatural episode. Okay, yeah, so we have one more Next spooky week. supernatural kind of 
differently themed episode left. Um, so stick around for that. If you're enjoying this sort of themed month, let us know. Um, if you're enjoying this and the podcast in general, we would love it if you could give us a rating and a review um, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you're listening. Um, because it really helps us a lot and it's super quick and easy to do. And if you subscribe, you get notified, uh, whenever we put out new episodes. So it's a win-win. And if you leave us a nice review, we will read it out. Yeah, totally. We have a merch shop. Uh, the link is in the episode description on the website, on social media. And for the whole month of March, you can get 30% off everything with the code OMG30. Yes. Because Taylor is now 30. And if you really like our ramblings and want to hear us talk even more crap, you can join our Patreon. Uh, tiers start from just £1 or $1 a month. Uh, going up $2 a month, you get a free episode, $5 or £5 a month. You get two bonus episodes a month. And for ten dollars and up, you get three bonus episodes a month. Yep, it's uh. And the two pound or two dollar up, you also get some cool merch that you can't buy anywhere. Yep. Um, you know, so that we're we really love all our our patrons, and uh, we want it to just be like a cool, like fun, you know, insider community kind of thing. So come hang out there, you know you. You get to see, not that you don't get to see like the stupid, silly side of us on, on the main show, but you get to see the stupider, less edited, silly side of us on Patreon. And once a month, you get a completely unscripted version of us. Yeah, which I really don't know. Is that really something that y'all want? Because like, I don't think I... It seems to be going well. It does. Like, it's weird, but yeah. yeah. Oh, and which... Uh, if you're interested in, in like what tier you should go for our five pound tier is the most popular so yes if that gives you any indication yeah yeah so that is patreon.com forward slash square mile of murder and that is it for today yeah, thank it. you very much for listening everyone we will be back on Friday with an episode for £10 and up patrons, mm -hmm. which is another spooky, bordering on true crime theme. <laughs> and for everyone else, we will be back next week. Yes. We'll see you then. Thanks. Bye. Bye.